Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa program. Welcome back to Africa Aware. It's great to have you listening. On today's podcast, we will be focusing on the topic of colonial reparations on stolen land. The specific case refers to the Kipsigi and Talai clans of Kericho County in Kenya, who were evicted by the British Army between 1895 and 1963 to make way for lucrative tea plantations owned by settlers, having never received any form of redress for the violations they suffered. A team representing the victims filed a complaint to the UN United Nations calling for an investigation in 2019. Last year, the United Nations ruled in favour of the Kenyan complainants and made several recommendations, including that the UK government should at least at minimum meet with victims and discuss compensation, an apology, as well as a possible memorialisation. Up until the day of the recording of this podcast, the UK government has not met with the team representing the victims. To discuss this matter, the team that filed the complaint, including the governor of Kericho County, Paul Chepkwon, and lawyers Rodney Dixon and Marie Nokos spoke with me in depth about the case, about the realities of what reparations look like, and what justice for the victims they seek. Thank you so much for joining us on Africa Aware. We're very lucky to be joined by our guests, and I'll ask each of them to introduce themselves, starting with you, Governor. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Professor Paul Chipon, Governor Kirichu County. I'm a second-time governor, serving, having served for 10 years. My name is Rodney Dixon QC. I am a barrister practicing in London and The Hague. And my name is Marie Nokoth. I'm an advocate of Kenya, practicing in Kenya. Fantastic. To, to start immediately, it would be great for our listeners to understand the context of the case that we're discussing today on the podcast. And to begin, that, I'll probably come to you first, Governor. This matter became possible courtesy of the new constitution of Kenya. When the British came to Africa, they were involved in land acquisitions contrary to the law, and people resisted. When we, Kenya became independent, it was not easy to remedy the, the, the problem because of the old constitution. So 2013, upon promulgation of the new constitution in 2010, there was no provision for addressing historical injustices under the old constitution, which the new constitution provided. So this gave a window for people to petition the new governor, who then was me, to address historical injustices. And this came from the assembly. So the assembly petitioned the executive, for which I made, demanding action from the British government. So this prompted me to budget for acquisition of lawyers, which we did, and then the process started all the way to Land Commission, all the way to United Nations. That is where we are this time. Probably I would just like to add that um, the period in Kenya, the British came to Kenya's uh, protectorate in 1895, and uh, in the year 1920, Kenya became a colony. And therefore, the land acquisition started way before Kenya became a colony. But it's only after uh, we became a colony that there was now the legal provision for the British to acquire the land that they had acquired. So the period we were looking at uh, was between 1895 and 1963, 
when Kenya became independent. Uh, so the historical injustices, that is land, eviction and land acquisition, and human and body injuries were suffered during that period. The case, as has been explained, is, is one for truth, uh, acknowledgement and, and reparation. As the governor set out, it, it has come a long way. Uh, and, and we're at the, the point now, uh, and that is why the governor and his delegation are, are in London at the moment, seeking to engage with the British government to address this matter and to find a constructive settlement for it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that overview. I'm sure our listeners will be keenly Googling <laughs> to find out more about the, the case if they don't get all the information here. To follow on from that, how did you build the case? What was the research that went into where What work was done to be able to get to the point we're currently at? Once the brief was conceptualized and the period identified of the violation identified, we started by identifying the victims. Who were the potential victims that we needed first to register, then secondly to interview? So we started by identifying the victims, then did the registration, and about 115,000 victims were registered. Then from that group, we identified the people to interview because of the numbers. So quite a number, both Kipsigis and Talai, were interviewed, uh, and we have their witness statements with us. We also did uh, a bit of documentary research. First, we went to Uganda because uh, part of Kenya was administered in Entebbe. So we went to Uganda National Archives and collected materials from 1985 to 1902 because then the, the administration center was in Uganda. We also went to Kenyan archives and we got quite a bit of material from the Kenyan archives, especially on the day-to-day -day administration of the British around that period of time. So then uh, we also came to London and we went to the Kew Gardens. We got some materials, but some of them were still classified. So files which we thought were very important were still classified and therefore we were not able to access them. Then after that, there was, of course, analysis of evidence, documentary evidence and the interview statements. And that is how we built the case. Then we, with that, we came up with legal opinions that now have formed what we have today that uh, informed the matter, the complaint that was filed at the UN Special Rapporteur on truth, justice and non-recurrence. We have also had some of the victims seen by experts, forensic experts. Bodily injury doctors came and examined the witnesses or the victims and actually found that some of the victims suffered bodily injuries. We've had rape victims among them. We've also had some who were sodomized by the British soldiers, according to their statements. And some also suffered uh, psychological trauma as a result. And therefore, we've had various experts examine these victims just to, ask, to ensure that our claim is cogent enough to meet any legal threshold. As the lawyer instructed uh, in the case to bring it forward, it has to be emphasized that these cases are often difficult to construct uh, and put together, particularly because a lot of the documentation might still be confidential, archived, not easy to access. Fortunately, in our case, more recently, we've been able to find such material. And, and also, uh, the victims, the, the, the over 110,000 victims, uh, have been able to give their, their first-hand accounts. So we've put that together to provide to the British government as a series of cases for them to review, to investigate, and to address. There's ample evidence there 
for the matter now to be properly investigated uh, so that the abuses and grievances that are outlined can be remedied. Thank you so much for that. And, and, and Rodney, to follow up there with regards to the remedy, what has your engagement with the UK government been regarding this issue? Well, we put that whole case together, as we've explained, and submitted it uh, to them in, in 2018 uh, and asked for a meeting to start the discussions on the matter, looking to see whether we could find a positive settlement. Our view was that it would not be useful to anyone or in anyone's interest to go and litigate this endlessly in the courts. There are limitation issues that apply as a matter of law, and that would take a lot of time, a lot of funds, and it would be very adversarial, rather to sit around the table and find a solution that's in everyone's interest. Uh, unfortunately, the UK government refused to engage with the matter at all. They said they would not enter into any process with the victims and their representatives. What they said was that in 2013, they had settled this matter uh, and they were referring to a case involving the Mau Mau emergency period. But as we explained to them, uh, our victims are completely separate. They're different, uh, come from a different area. The time period is completely different. Therefore, just because you've settled with, with one group, uh, and that's to be praised, that doesn't mean it's the end of the matter. You, you need to look at all the victims who've been affected, particularly those where their land has been taken away. Uh, it's, it's a bit like if, if there's a, a multiple car crash, you, you decide to settle with the, the first person who's injured in the first car, but not the second or the third or the fourth car. Uh, they, they didn't accept that approach and continued to refuse to engage in the process at all. And that's why, as Maureen has mentioned, we took the matter to the next level, to the United Nations, to seek to get their assistance, to use their good offices to facilitate this mediation, negotiation, settlement process. Uh, that was a positive outcome because it set out for the UK government what are the steps that could be taken to engage in this matter. Uh, unfortunately, the UK government again just gave the same answer, that, that in 2013 we settled this, um, which is insufficient because it clearly only applies to a certain discrete group of victims and, and not our clients. So we've consistently had the door shut uh, in, in our face. Uh, and yet again, when the governor came with his delegation now to, to London asking for a meeting in light of the UN report, a further refusal. So that's where we are at the moment. We are at a point where, most unfortunately, the UK government is not being prepared at this stage to engage. We, we hope that that will change and we will keep taking steps to ensure that the door is opened because ultimately that's going to benefit everyone. Thank you so much for that overview from a legalistic perspective, Rodney. It's a, it's a journey you've been on from, from London to New York, starting all the way, of course, in Carrico County initially. And since you mentioned the term justice, since you mentioned the term addressing these historical but also current day issues, what does justice look like? And I'll come to you first, Maureen. What does justice look like for victims in Kenya? Well, before I answer that question, I think it's important to mention that the victims petition the, under the Kenyan constitution, the governor had mentioned uh, the Kenyan constitution 2010. There was a provision for inquiry into historical injustices. And the victims petitioned the National Land Commission in Kenya, which has the mandate to inquire into the injustices. And uh, we can report that we got a positive response. There was a number of recommendations that were given by the National Land Commission. 
and one of them was reparations, that the, the, that the victims should engage with the UK government to give reparations on the same. So that, that is one of the things that we've gotten, we've been able to achieve in, in Kenya. Now, coming to the current question on, on what the victims look like, if you come to Kericho, during uh, colonization, the British created reserves for the natives. And these reserves on one side of Kericho are tea plantations, and on the other side were where the reserves were located. So there is disparity, economic disparity between the two sites, one for the highlands, which belong to the Europeans, and the reserves. So these victims have been, most of them live in abject poverty, uh, and it is intergenerational. They inherited it from the grandparents or great-grandparents who were evicted from the land. So most of them do not are not doing well economically. Apart from just the other historical justices, it has continued to affect their day-to-day lives. Governor, as the head of the executive and the, and the figurehead, what does justice look like to you for the victims who, of course, you represent? The victims are living under very squalid conditions. What Maureen has said is true. We have the Kipsikis and Talai, the Talai ward ported to Gwazi, where they, they suffered a lot of injuries, and then the Kipsikis remained in Kericho. So these two groups are demanding justice because where they, they lived has been taken and teased grown there, and they don't understand why they are living in poverty. While the multinationals are ripping from the land. So as a responsible head of executive, I decided to listen to the cries of the people and to take the advisory which was given to us, which, which is this route. And this is a very peaceful route we, do, we took. We are non-violent. So we are asking the British to comply and to listen to the cries of, of the victims. Maybe on what justice looks like for the victims, I would say that the victims first want an acknowledgement that their rights were violated by the British government. So they need that acknowledgement that there was something that was done wrong to them. Then now, after the acknowledgement and probably an apology, we can now start looking at reparations. So they, apart from the acknowledgement and apology, the victims also look at reparations. How can they be repatriated for the historical injustices that they suffered? Thank you so much, Maureen and, and, and Governor, for outlining the real injustices that took place and actually what the need is to, to ensure that these issues are addressed in a manner that is centering the victims and their needs and their modern day issues. Moving on to more of a philosophical question regarding reparations in general, Rodney. You know, is the, is the factor here that the payment of these colonial era reparations is an issue from a fiscal perspective or is it around political interest? Is it about, you know, the concern about setting a precedent that can be used uh, against the government? What is the answer to that question? Well, firstly, the issue of time often comes up that, that this took place such a long time ago that really do we want to go back and, and open up uh, the, the wounds. Uh, th- that's uh, uh, an unfounded uh, argument because we, as, as, as often happens in, in, in criminal matters, celebrate the fact very often when we can resolve crimes much later because information has come to light. It's, it's not something we, we push away. We, we, we try, no matter how long it takes as a society, to, to get to the truth, to, to, to the bottom of what's happened 
in all manner of, of crimes committed, where allegations have been made and that they, they, they're unresolved. Exactly the same uh, should apply in respect of crimes committed during past colonial times. That, that, that if at the time justice wasn't brought, that, that doesn't mean that it can never be resolved in the future. And certainly those who bore the brunt of it, the, the, the victims, uh, from, from my experience, from interviewing a, a number of them, long for that justice, no matter what, no, no matter how long it takes. And especially in, because in our case, we have a lot of victims who are very old, who, who are very close to dying. It's, it's, it's their one wish that before they go to the, their grave, they get the truth, they get an acknowledgement. As Maureen has emphasized, at least that, that, that recognition, uh, so that the chapter can be closed and it won't linger and go on through their children and, and their children there thereafter. So time is not a barrier. Uh, fiscally, yes, we all have to live within budgets and means. Uh, but, but in our case, the victims aren't asking for uh, the bank to be cleared out. They're asking for recognition and for some compensation. Uh, to be paid you know, with within reasonable means. Uh, and that's why we wanted to sit down and look at discussing the terms of a settlement so that those factors could all be taken into account. Um, they should at least be able to sit down with those involved uh, and see what can be, be worked out. That, that's an entirely fair and, and reasonable request. And, and then with, with regard to the, the precedent uh, aspect. I think that's often a, a fear in, in the minds of governments, uh, and understandably so. But that also can't be a reason then, then to try and sweep everything under the carpet. Uh, yes, we have to find proportionate solutions, but we have to embark on, upon the path of, of, of doing that, taking into account that, yes, there might be many more claims, uh, but that's not a reason to deal with the claims that are in front of you in, in a way that can then set a positive precedent resolving other matters because they're not going to go away either. So the bottom line is it's no use you know, hiding in the shadows. One has to come out, confront these matters maturely and find solutions that are long-lasting and that will ultimately be in the interests of, of all the parties concerned. Thank you so much for that, Rodney. Now, moving on to um, a question that is centred in, in the theme of work that the Africa programme is deeply invested in, which is African agency. You know, African solutions for African problems generally is how it's phrased, but we see it as a slightly more uh, a complex matter, ensuring that, you know, African governments, African civil society are able to lead on the discussions regarding their own continent versus always being externalised to the view of development or, or, or various other lenses. When it comes to a topic like this, the question I have for you is, where should the impetus or the push for colonial reparations come from? Does it come from diaspora? Like myself, of course, with my, with, my, with my parents being born in Somaliland, does it come from Kenyan civil society in this case in particular? Does it come from governments across the continent where colonial crimes were committed? Where does that impetus come from? That should start with the victims on the ground who feel the pinch. The historical injustices will never be wished away, especially when people are treated differently. Like in Kenya, for example, other communities were compensated, but the Kipsigis and the Lai were not compensated. So this matter can never go away until justice is, is seen to be done. I think also adding on to what the governor has uh, just said, governments also need to be involved. Because uh, with the government involvement, at least we can approach the International Court of Justice 
on a government-to-government basis. So if the governments, African governments, and particularly in this case the Kenyan government is involved, it will give a push, it will give an impetus to the cause of the Kipsigis and the Talai victims. And uh, other stakeholders, also civil society, they can help in highlighting these issues for reparations. So the, the involvement of not only the victims, but also the governments, civil society, and various actors, including yourselves, will be very important into highlighting the issues and raising awareness on the need for reparations for colonial injustices. And finally, but obviously not least of all, the public. Uh, the, the public should be engaged in this. There should be an outcry uh, and there should be a call for there to be a, a proper inquiry and a proper resolution of the matter. Uh, I think we've seen recently in response to the conflict in Ukraine an, an outpouring of, of public anger on an unprecedented scale. And I think for many it's restored faith again in the fact that you know we, we as a a global community will stand together against uh, injustices and won't allow them to be perpetrated regardless. There has been a, a, a renewed focus on the international rule of law, uh, and that's to be welcomed, uh, and it's absolutely the right thing, but it shouldn't end in one country like, like Ukraine. Uh, say that there's hope again, but that should be now extended to other countries, to other international crimes. There shouldn't be one law for victims in one country, but a different law for victims in, in another. Uh, and that is largely dependent on the public joining the dots, understanding that and, and making that call, because that will then put pressure on those who are in government and international bodies to, to find solutions. So I, I hope that the new trend that, that, that has been sparked will continue uh, and that will, this will, will, will produce results that are favourable to all victims. Thank you once again for that, Rodney. I think you make a, a fantastic point about the universality of justice and the importance of not seeing justice solely for some as a universal principle that, that everyone should be entitled to. And to, to end, a question that is often asked as soon as reparations are brought up, and this was something that we saw in light of the Black Lives Matters protests that, that took place a couple of years ago, something that various activists and, and, and civil society organisations have, have advocated for, not just necessarily in Africa, but of course in South America, in in East Asia, of course the, the Maori and the Aboriginals in, in New Zealand and Australia. Why is reparations always seen as an impossible ask? That's, that's a question that I have for you, especially as for people that are so actively in pursuit of justice for the people of Kericho. My question for you is, why is it seen as impossible? Firstly, it's, it's vital to understand that it's not something that's impossible to, to achieve. And that's often the starting point because it's a convenient way of, of brushing it aside uh, and not grappling with the matter in a genuine and, and honest fashion. Uh, so it's, it's a convenient excuse. Uh, it's, it's certainly not uh, impossible, especially where victims, as in our case, are, are, are not asking for amounts of, of, of money that are going to bankrupt any country. They are looking at reasonable solutions. They, they, they know, as is the case with any crime, uh, that you can never get full compensation. You can never be put back into the same position uh, again. That's something you then have to deal with and, and live with as the victim. But there has to be recognition. As I emphasized before, when any crime is committed, that's, that's what we, we require. I don't think anybody who's been wronged 
would say, okay, well, it's it's now impossible for there to to be justice. And why why should it be any different uh, in in these cases? I think it's part of our our human condition to always try and strive for that wrong to be righted as best as it can. And it's just too easy to say, oh, that that that, that can't be done, when when in fact, if that was something that happened to any of us it would be our knee-jerk reaction. We'd want that for us, we'd want that for our family members. And that's what the victims in this case are saying. You know, put yourselves in, in our position. You, you have to see the common humanity here and, and, and look to, with us, find a solution, as, as we would want for you as well. And I, I, I think that's the vital step that, that needs to be taken here, is, is a, a greater opening up and awareness of the issue and realizing that it is a, a common problem for all humanity, it's not for a specific group. It's not something that can be put in a, a shelf and then hidden away. So it's it's now vital that this and it's 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 a it's a golden opportunity is seized to close this chapter and then to allow for you know much closer working relations in the future. I say it can be of benefit to everyone concerned. In line with what Rodney had, say, had said, I call upon the British to abide by the UN resolution which gave recommendations or not to settle the matter. This matter will never go away as long as the people are suffering. And these are people who are very understanding. We know that there is law to be followed and they are very patient. So my, my call is to the British government to respect the, nation, the, the United Nations recommendations, which are very clearly stated. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me um, on the podcast here today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Harrowing, but but really, really inspiring to hear your story. Is there anything you'd like to point our audience towards to be able to follow the, the journey that you're currently on or to follow the, the justice effort you currently seek? I would uh, highlight the, the UN proceedings to, to, to follow those uh, and the inquiries that have been made. Uh, I'd also highlight the fact that this land is now being used for very lucrative farming of tea. Uh, a lot of this tea comes here to the UK. It's the, the tea that we, we drink uh, every day. Uh, so look into the, the companies involved uh, because it's important that they take their responsibility seriously as well. And we've asked the UN, uh, and, and this will be happening, to communicate directly with the, the tea companies as well so that they can play their part uh, in resolving this matter. Thank you so much. And that brings us to an end of Africa Aware. Thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe to us on the podcast platform you're listening to us on so that others are able to find the podcast easier. And do leave a review. It has been a pleasure hosting this episode. I thank you again. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.